This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, uh, interesting comments coming out of, uh, I guess, liberal camps. The leader of the Ontario PC party, is he at war with his own party? Some uh, controversial nomination meetings, writing associations, executives quitting. uh, And and it appears, no, it doesn't. Someone is trying to say, or maybe there is, uh, some sort of uh, disruption within the party ranks of the Conservative Party. Let's bring in Christo Avali, Social Sciences and, Human- and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history, University of Toronto, with us now. Christo, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. So what are your thoughts on all this? Is there trouble in the PC party, or is this just opposition poking with a stick? Well, you know... It- Often it's both. I mean, I think that obviously the opposition has a as a motive and a and a benefit to, to to making it look like the conservatives have issues of discord. But you know, at least since uh, Sam Oosterhof won his uh, his the nomination, uh, you know, in Southern Ontario, um, there's kind of been signs of disunity. I think one of the things that that Patrick Brown tried to do uh, in selling himself as the as the person to lead, but also as in his leadership is to try to portray to Ontarians that, you know, he's not a, a hardcore social conservative, that he's going to bring fiscal responsibility to the province, but that he's not going to, you know, attack uh, GLBT kids in schools and, 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 and attack women's rights and, and, and put, you know, God back in school or any kind of fear, baseless or not, um, he was trying to dissuade all of that. Right. And when someone like Oosterhof, you know, defeats one of his allies um, in the nomination there and then handily wins the seat because it's a strong conservative riding, it instantly created this tension where you have this young man who has, you know, traditional Christian views on, on, on things like gay marriage and uh, abortion and whatnot, um, that the party might well not want to fully divest themselves of, but they don't want to be in the public eye. And that created a problem. And this is with with other things, with, you know, uh, accusations of riding association, uh, you know, nominations being tilted in one way or the other, favoritism, all of that. The Liberal Party... How can you really say too much about favoritism, though, when you just made the point about uh, Ustarov? No, no, certainly. But... Again, accusations don't have to be true. Yeah, right? not very true. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, so how much point. of this, how much is this, I guess my point here, Christo, is how much of this is, you know, uh, a distraction from the opposition as opposed to uh, real issues within the party? And I guess, the, you know, one of the reasons we can speculate like this is because there really hasn't been much said by them. So uh, maybe a, a second part to this is how long can they go? Uh, we're still a few, obviously, uh, several months away from the next election. At what point do they start loading up and, uh, you know, Patrick uh, Brown goes from Patrick Beige to Patrick Brown? Well, you know, I think right now they're not going to be too hurt by any of this. This is, you know, this could could hurt them in the sense that if, if local activists feel like the process isn't fair or the party isn't listening to them, that could hurt them come election time, both in terms of raising money but also in getting the kind of people who are going to knock on the doors and answer the phones and, and all of that. But I don't think the average voter is paying attention to this right now. I mean, the, the whole issue with, with Glenn Tebow's seat up in Sudbury, most people didn't care about that until it went to court. And, mm. and none of these conservative you know, accusations of, of riding inappropriateness have gone to a legal trial yet. So I think in that sense they're fine. I think his, his, his biggest challenge is, it may be less on these accusations, but more again on, on trying to convince that kind of swing voter in a place like Toronto or in a place here like Kingston, for instance, that, look, I can vote for the conservatives, they'll cut my taxes, you know, they'll, you know, make, make life a little bit more unequal, but maybe a little bit more meritorious in the province, but they won't attack people because they're gay or because they're Muslim or because they're black, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he has to kind of really... Um, keep that going. But again, he can't fully alienate the kind of person who maybe holds those views because those people, if not the, the amount of votes they'll need, those are the people who, you know, donate the money and donate their time. And that's essential in winning, in winning an election. You really need the, 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 the base to be there for you. When do you expect to hear more from him, Patrick Brown? I don't know. I mean, right now things are looking good for him. 
polls have him in a pretty good position. He hasn't himself really put he hasn't had any personal foot in mouth moments. There's no Tim Hudak, I'm gonna I'm gonna fire you all yeah. kind of moment. You know, <laughs> regardless of whether you know you thought Tim Hudak was right in saying that, um, you know, it wasn't politically astute. And yeah. I think in that sense he's been quite effective. I think, you know, there's no point in, in going too hard too fast right now. Um, the government Again, and whether you support it or not, the government has its own positions on high-profile issues like the fight for 15 and, and all of these things. And there's a lot of fighting going on with the government right now. He doesn't really need to weigh in. And Kathleen Wynne is, is one of the least popular politicians in the country right now. Um, so I think his strategy, and it looks like it, is that, look, they're trying to build up capacity on an institutional level, and there's no reason for him to come out swinging right now when he, you know, can only kind of put himself at risk. Well, sure. I, think, I, right, yeah. I guess in a sense, why, why, you know, uh, come forward and distract uh, everybody from the issues that are going on with the liberal government, right? You no, know, and I think that's the point. Again, the government is, is not popular. Um, even, again, even with the, the fight for 15, I mean, a lot of people, even who support the position, see the government's use of it as cynical. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a sense that, um, that that they're they're trying to hold on to power, and again, if you're if you're the conservatives right now, you're you're going to kind of try to sit out this issue. You're going to kind of try to to kind of again work on your local capacity. And again, this is the risk here. Again, whether these accusations are true or not, if there's a sense that the party is trying to push a certain um, mandate onto the writings, and again, the the principle of this thing is that you know local. Conservatives, and same thing with the NDP and with the Liberals, the local people should be able to pick their own candidate within reason, of course, uh, that they fit party principles. Uh, but that over, overbearing influence from the central party is a bad thing. That could, that could be the issue. Again, that's the kind of thing, fair or not, that could kind of pull them into the spotlight. I guess right now he's been, he's been good at keeping a low profile and, and letting the, the current issues kind of envelop the government. Uh, what is Patrick Brown doing now? How is he preparing? Other than, uh, as you've just mentioned, strategy-wise, laying low, what is he doing? You know, I think he's, he's again, capacity building is very important. Um, he has to be able to kind of uh, build those alliances. Uh, he's been doing this the whole time. He's trying to build new alliances with groups, not only the traditional conservative alliances, or, you know, that you might see with, you know, like small businessmen and businesswomen, or, you know, those kind of swing voters that they kind of always fight with the liberals over again, like certain kind of professionals and whatnot. But they've also tried to reach out to, to some public sector workers, um, you know, and trying to kind of win those people over on, look, we don't agree on everything, but, you know, strong fiscal management is what's good for province, and that's what's going to keep the province solvent, and that's what's going to keep people in their jobs, and we won't have to do anything rash if we're, if we're, if we're good with the money. Um, you know, that's kind of what he's been trying to do. I think other than that, it's, he's probably just strategizing with his team. You know, they're probably looking ahead at scenarios. I mean, when's the election going to be called? What are the main issues going to be? Um, you know, looking at the polling, looking at the data, I think that's what he's doing right now. I mean, other than that, I'm not sure. Because, again, do you think he has been quite quiet. Do you think they are concerned that she's just kind of loading up the shopping cart and throwing out all these bonbons? I mean, that's something that you always kind of have to be concerned about. I mean, I think in that sense, they'll have to find an, a narrative to, to challenge it. You know, and the narrative could be, you know, well, it's, it's cynical, it's irresponsible, you know, et cetera. But the conservatives might have to be prepared to look at what of these can we adopt as our own pieces of policy, which ones can we not accept. Maybe there are different bonbons. And again, the conservatives have their own bonbons. Tax cuts are every bit as much a bonbon as a uh, social benefit increase. You know, they both take part of the public coffer and give it to a person, um, you know, to, to mm -hmm. increase voting totals or what have you. So they have to maybe kind of come up with their own list of bonbons. Um, to, to kind of challenge the liberals. Christo, we've seen in the, the last couple of provincial elections, many have said, um, you know, it was a miracle that the, the, the liberals did win. Obviously, the Hudak uh, with 1,000, 100,000 jobs, and, and prior to that, and prior to that and such. Uh, many still think that even though 
um, uh, people are tired of the win government of the liberal government, as they would any government that's been in that long. Uh, they're still concerned that the, that the conservatives could blow it or or watch it all go to the NDP or what have you. Uh, sh- should should conservatives have that have that fear? You know, I I think that fear is important because one, if you didn't have it's theirs to lose, right? Lose it's their election to lose. Yeah, yeah, but it was their election to lose last time too. I think if you don't have the fear that look, we could blow this opportunity, then then you're going to be cocky. Good and that point. arrogance is going to both manifest itself in how you perform to the public, but also your internal operations. So I think it's prudent that, look, they're worried that we can't win this. But I think, you know, there is a reality of a certain kind of voter in this province, and there's a millions of Ontarians who just don't seem to support the Conservative Party. And in many ways, you know, historically at least, they're much closer to the, uh, aligned to the Liberals than the Liberals are to the NDP. But the average Liberal voter doesn't see it as such, and there's a kind of anti-conservative mentality. And I think that's something they have to guard against. And frankly, it's going to depend on what it looks like closer to the election. Um, you know, will, will anti-conservative votes line up behind the NDP? Will they line up behind the Liberals? Will they be split? You know, those are the kind of questions that, we, that, that kind of have to be asked. But they can't play the game just uh, with the assumption that there's going to be a split. They have to find a way at finding... That kind of voter, whether it's an NDP voter with a bit of social conservatism in them, you know, who doesn't like the downtown Toronto elites telling them what to do, you know, the kind of Rob Ford type voter, mm-hmm. or whether it's, you know, a, a liberal person who's like, look, like, you know, again, like I, I, I'm, I'm like a, a gay urban professional, but, you know, when push comes to shove, I'll take a tax cut. You know, they need to win those people, too. And how they can do that is the challenge of the Conservative Party in Ontario, because unlike Alberta or unlike, you know, Saskatchewan, there's not as much of a kind of traditional rural conservative base. Uh, there is that in Ontario, but there's, there's also a city of 4 million or 5 million people, you know, that, 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 that doesn't have that kind of mentality. Are we seeing the warm and fuzzy, kinder, gentler conservatives, both federally and uh, provincially, that they were all talking about after losing both last elections and have only got about 30 seconds left? I mean, is that coming across to the public, do you think? Maybe, but in some ways, no. I mean, Harper already was the... He wasn't warm and fuzzy, but he was the supposed progenitor of the modern conservatism. He was the conservative that wasn't just for white people. He wasn't just for white Christians in in rural Alberta. He was for Chinese-Canadian businessmen in downtown Toronto and, 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 you know, uh, Pakistani uh, lawyers living in Brampton and and living in in, in the 905. The the reality is that even though Kelly Leach didn't win... Um, she's done damage. She's done damage to the federal party. And I think that they've kind of almost in some ways reverted past the Stephen Harper effort to, to, to diversify the party, and they've kind of reemerged with a little bit of white nationalism in their image, again, failure or not. And that's something they're going to have to work to shed. I don't know if that's affecting Patrick Brown, but you know, federal politics often have a way of seeping in. You know, one thing Kathleen Wynne can say is she's got a popular liberal prime minister that she can maybe call in for help. Yeah, good point. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanity Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history, University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So, uh, you know, I'm going to come on, I'm going to whine, and, um, and you know, I'm going to get notes like I got first world problem, and it's like, yes, it is a first world problem, but... I'm hoping these people will join us all in the first world. So uh, anyway, and and I don't want to uh, label all uh, union or beer store or LCB employees uh, the same way because they're not. And some are very hardworking and do a great job at what they do. However, there are more than one or two bad apples. And I'm not sure if it's the employee or if it's the way that they are trained. And, you know, I, 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 I've worked since I was 15 years of age in retail. I push brooms. I empty garbage cans. I clean lunch counters. I check people out. I pack grocery bags. I've done all that stuff. And, um, you know, the, you get taught and trained how to do it, and the customer always comes first. You get them in. You get them out. You get their business done as quickly and possibly as you can. 
Because if you don't, they'll take their business somewhere else. And I did not want to lose customers for Mr. Tricker's Woolworth store. So that's how we were all taught how to do it. So anyway, uh, let me read you the blog because it will get to this a lot faster than me just babbling about my terrible experience in the beer store. Here is the blog uh, that is generating uh, some attention. Customer service. If we don't get it, we take our business somewhere else. Unless it's the foreign-owned, union-controlled monopoly known as the beer store. I followed an elderly gentleman into the store on Thursday who had eight cases of empty cans, all of the same brand, that he had obviously sorted and put back into the correct boxes for a speedy return. There was only two of us in the store at the time. Instead of merely counting the man's empties and completing his order, we had to wait while the beer store employee took each case back one at a time to the back room. He would then empty the cans into a bin, break up the boxes, and then return to the cashier stand to do the same until all eight cases had been processed, taking several minutes. I asked another employee, why doesn't he just give the guy his order and do this after the transaction is complete? The other employee said there isn't enough staff for that. I politely said there is no one else in the store other than the four of us, and he wasn't doing anything. As I left, the one employee said to the other, pissed off customer. Yes, correct. The problem is no one cares in this monopoly that doesn't have to answer to anyone about customer service. And it's just another reason why Ontarians have had, a, have had enough of the beer store and the LCBO. Some of the responses that I've received... Uh, include, uh, hey, has the bromance with Smokey that you have with Smokey fallen off the rails when he had the public in suspense on the last long weekend threatening to strike uh, negotiating the monopoly on the upcoming pot sale locations? You couldn't say uh, more good things about him. I like Smokey. I think he's a fair guy. And if Smokey knew this was going on and somebody was abusing the privileges and, and the rights that he's worked so hard for, he wouldn't accept this. He wouldn't. Because he doesn't need any bad apples in his basket, spoiling it for everybody else. And then somebody else, oh, first world problem, Scott. Yeah, it is. So when is the beer store and the LCBO going to join the rest of us in the first world? Yes, I wish it was a calmer time. I wish we had time. I wish I didn't have to run my kids here and there and whatever. And, you know, I, I don't mean to sound like a grumpy middle-aged man. It's just simple courtesy. You know, on the same note, when I finished there, my wife likes wine, I had to go to the liquor store. There was a lady being trained there. The lineup was extra long because of that. But it was an interesting experience watching them do it, and it turned into sort of like a little comedy routine. So I probably had to wait equally as long in the liquor store, waiting for this person to train the employee, which everyone was fine with, as opposed to... Just bad customer service at the other place. So that's what I'm talking about. How come we can have one yet the other in the same place or various locations of? How come it's so inconsistent? Let's bring in Dan Malik, health and science professor, Brock University, author of Try to Consol Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition, Ontario. Dan is with us now. Dan, is it me? Am I just a grumpy old fart? could be a really short interview if I answer that. <laughs> no, but, no, no, no. Um, you, you go for it, Dad. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're a grumpy old fart. I mean, sometimes we look at problems in businesses that are government-owned and sort of try to extrapolate that as being because of the monopoly. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who can come up with a, a story of a problem. Think about airlines and bad customer service yeah, or yeah, other yeah. companies. But right? at least we can go to another airline. Um, I, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, there, when there's limited choice, um, it's, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm not an expert on airlines, so we won't talk about that. But yeah, I mean, but what we, what we tend to do is go, well, this is a problem with government monopoly, right? Is it? Well, I don't know. You, What's well, bad you training? Actually, Pardon me? It, either it's bad training or inconsistent policy. And, and here's another one on inconsistent policy. And I remember having uh, uh, this person on who talked about the story, who, is, who, who actually had it happen to them, and then the PR person at the LCBO at the time. And this was over uh, kids touching alcohol in the store. 
And this guy, he, he's a wine connoisseur, so he'll buy, he'll buy like six, seven bottles of wine at a time. Mm-hmm. And so he's going up to the counter, and his 17-year-old daughter is just helping her dad lift the bottles out of the thing and put it onto the, the, the counter. And this is before all this started actually appearing in stores where there was signage and stuff. This is about a couple of years ago. And long story short, they refused to sell him the liquor because she had touched the bottles. So I'm, I then, I had him tell the story, which was just terrible. He ended up leaving with, you know, his $300 in his hand. And, um, and I remember calling the PR lady and she said, that just isn't the case. It shouldn't happen. Uh, it's about a consumption thing and whatever. And I said, yeah, but you know, it's not about some, uh, somebody over, uh, underage, uh, getting somebody overage to, to purchase it for them. This is a pretty obvious situation. And at what point do you, you know, take a regulation and then, and then blow it way out of proportion? Long story short, she categorically denied that this was going on. And then like a year later, you hear all these campaigns when you're in the LCBO. It's like being in an airport customs, you know, do not let your kids touch the alcohol. You know, it's like, yeah. my God, what the hell is this? Well, I think that... Have we not got it, better things to do? Uh, um, I, I guess. I mean, part of the... I, I'm I'm interested to see if this is a... I mean, this is something you could have asked Smokey, right? Um, because... Um, I will. The, 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 <laughs> so you want me to hang up? You can talk. No, 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 Dan. <laughs> but, yeah, Honestly, but I, Dan, I'm getting the feeling that you think I don't want you here, and that's not true. I want you here. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, that, the, the whole issue of children not talk, uh, touching booze in the, in the liquor store uh, seems to me rooted in this persistent, um, I'm going to say, attacks or criticisms we have on the liquor store, right? So what's happening is the, they're re- restating the importance of managing access, yeah. to the stuff, right? And if we look, you know, we can cross this over to the cannabis issue where the big theme has been keeping it out of the hands of kids and and show that it's a symbolic thing. Your kid, your kid can't even pick it up. Yeah. But it's almost like, you know, this is how serious we are about keeping booze out of the hands of children. It can't even literally be in their hands for a minute. It's, and I think that's... It's a PR ploy. It, it's a PR thing for sure. Um but the, it's PR based upon, um, you know, your your whole blog about the monopoly is PR based upon this idea that um, we still need to keep control over certain substances um, and keep them out of the hands of sort of private mar- the private marketplace, right? Um, which is framed by some as because it's competitive, it is therefore um, going to be more open to corruption than. Um, a government control. I mean, and this is, uh, I'm not saying that that's what I believe. I'm saying this is kind of the idea, the idea behind government control. So if we look at, uh, we can cross substances again, right? If we look at cannabis and the LCBO managing that, this is the idea of what's called yeah. um, um, a disinterested management or just, dis- you know, where the issue is control. The, there's no interest in profit. The interest is in control. And so we see this in things like no kids are touching this in things like those pictures they have of people who look maybe 20, maybe 30, <laughs> who knows. Right? Are you this person? Yeah, you will exactly. be strip searched. How, well, how old, how old do you think I am kind of stuff, right? Um, and so it's, it is marketing for sure. It's optics, but it's optics around this specific way of viewing these substances as socially problematic and therefore needing more control. I mean, so Dan, where does that like, come from? Where does that message start? Um, I think it's historical. I mean, does it start on the government? Does it start at the agency itself? Um, you know, it, it, I would say it starts with people's concerns in this case about intoxication. Uh, so it's, I mean, it, this, this concern existed long before uh, concern about drink, drunk driving, but it has certainly picked up with um, from about the 1940s and 50s when organizations like MAD developed, they actually developed a later, later than that, with concern about drunk driving. It, it intensifies with things like public health messaging around the healthfulness or lack of healthfulness of certain substances. And therefore, and this gets into what you know we might call a nanny state idea where 
this substance could cause you ill health and therefore we need to manage it more carefully. And that's what we get with the cannabis stuff as well. There's often this hyperactive public health messaging around cannabis is going to hurt you when the evidence is really, really scanty on that. Um, but, but we take that because health messaging is sort of a uh, something we we are more willing to listen to. I mean, look at how much nutritional, uh, how much coverage, uh, any kind of identification of a nutritional blip in you know our food now. You know, trans fats now. Um, wine is good for you now. Wine isn't good for you. All of that stuff, right? So that's where these things are kind of embedded in our psyche. It's like health messaging, um, danger in driving, all of the things that intoxicants are linked to. Um, suggest to some people that they need more control than just everyday um, products. Uh, so getting back to the PR message mm-hmm. and the whole thing about not wanting, it, it's a very interesting point that you brought up that I had never thought of, but it's all part of the whole uh, imagery of we're here to protect them, so we don't even let them do that. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, is this the equivalent of swatting your dog on the snoot? Well, I would never do that. With but, a newspaper? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, in the sense of that there are aspects of this that are conditional reflex, you know, very much like, uh, you know, ringing, a, ringing the bell and the dog salivates, right, when they're, mm-hmm. when they're ready to eat, um, that Pavlovian response. That is some, a, there's some aspect of that in government management of, Things like intoxicants, this is something I've explored in in detail in the book you mentioned earlier, talking about the way people internalize these controls, right? That's why it's called try to control yourself, because it's about encouraging people to drink the right way, maybe smoke weed the right way in the right context, and therefore, and now in in what we're talking about, purchase in the right way, um, and therefore, you know, uh, continue to be a respectable, responsible member of the society uh, um, so, so yeah so there's that element and if you do it you can drink if yeah. you don't do it eh, you can't drink and that guy <laughs> your, your friend chose not to purchase that stuff yeah because of that but the only drag is he just had to circle around to another store yeah well yeah but exactly. you know what does that do I mean you know um uh, as uh, one of the emailers had said um you know, while this negotiation was going on with the LCBO, of course, in the back pocket, and, and you know, I talked to Smokey, and yeah. uh, God bless him, but, you know, he said he didn't know anything about the pot stuff that was going on. It all came, you know, flying in front of him, which, you know, I'm not sure I buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but obviously, uh, you know, they were looking ahead to greener pastures, no pun intended. <laughs> How will this change the LCBO, even though it is a separate, if it's the CCBO, like you have suggested earlier, uh, or what have you, how will this, will this change things there? Will this loosen up things in in alcohol and such? In other words, if they get into the pot business, will they leave me alone in the beer store? Uh, well, first of all, as you know, the beer store is it's separate. Yeah, it's got nothing right? to do with it. Yeah, um, but um, and it's a different union as well. I'm just uh, yelling at everybody right now, Dan. <laughs> it's okay. Clearly, um, I need to finish work and have a drink. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's Friday, right? Uh, that's um, right. Although it's Friday, doesn't matter if it's Friday. Um, <laughs> it's Friday somewhere, maybe. Uh, that's it, right. It, yeah. Um, I don't know if it will change. Uh, it, it, I, it could go either way, or it could just stay the same, right? It, it could be. I mean, if we're thinking about a limited capacity to control and they pour all of it into cannabis, then yeah, yeah, maybe. But it's a control organization, right? It's a liquor control board. So the the job has to remain control for it to remain viable. And, and so we're not going to see any glossy catalogs at the CCBO? It would be interesting to see that. Well, yeah. And, and so the cannabis issue... Uh, Sorry, now I'm getting some weird echo, and so it's, it's distracting to me. But the cannabis issue is, is fascinating because the um, it's following very much, to, in, in my mind, what happened with, uh, with, with, with liquor in the 1920s, which is you start off with hyper-control and then you ease up. If they started off with really nice glossy magazines, yeah. um, That's true, people yeah. would go ballistic. Yeah. Uh, right. It would look like encouragement. So, 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. So any more word on how this is going to shake down uh, as far as what this is going to look like with, and do we know this, is the CCBO a legitimate term or is that just one we're speculating with now? It's just the term we're using. I don't know if they will, ha- I mean, it, the Liquor Control Board is going to manage this. So it may do as, they may do as Washington State did, which is change their Washington Liquor Control Board to Washington Liquor and Cannabis board so you didn't actually have to change the acronym um at least we don't have to put firearms in there yeah well yeah you know i mean (laughs) you don't have to have that issue but that's another thing we can talk about with the private uh business and sales right that's a controlled product as well but i don't think it i think it's sold privately isn't i don't know i don't know yeah um but yeah so so I don't know what the name is going to be, but uh, we haven't heard any specifics around that. Uh, what, when do you think we will hear things like locations? I mean, will you start to, I mean, because sooner or later, aren't they going to have to start building these things? Yeah, and, and I think that what's, part of what's happening is looking at um, properties that have been closed or properties that are near um, sort of major areas of consumption uh, you know, so there are pr- places in Toronto, but as we've discussed before, I mean, I was talking to someone who said, you know, where is there a dispensary in Niagara Falls? And yeah. I don't smoke, but I found out that I don't think there is one, right? So, so they're going to al- also have to identify places of um, at main access points across the province to wh- where's the best place to put the store? Because what they want to do is draw people from other businesses, right. be they people in the on the corner or actual storefront dispensaries and draw them to the LCB. Dan, I've talked to people who were, who had franchise, you know, east to west nationally doing this and trying to fight the storefront thing in Ontario and, and seem to think that because it's out west that it will happen here. Do you think there's a snowball's chance in hell of us seeing storefront stuff like they have in Vancouver? You mean like private uh, dispensaries? Uh, Not right now. No. Um, The the government is very much following the storefront or the the government run storefront model at this point. Um, it, I think what will be more interesting is whether the uh, supply of cannabis can be guaranteed through the current licensed producers because they're just producing for medical, right? right. As soon as you open it up, there's a whole bunch of craft and, and small small batch producers. You know, I'm using liquor terms, but yeah. of cannabis who are going to be locked out unless uh, this opens up, and they provide apparently good product. There you go. And very, like you said, very much parallels the craft uh, beer and wine industry. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition, Ontario. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. Cheers, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. First, let's start the hour off with millennials. And, you know, the poor millennials, man, they just get attacked. It's like, uh, you know, they can't walk across the street without getting a spitball in the side of the head. Uh, Why are millennials now at staying at home? Well, I would say first and foremost, probably financially. Uh, but it's it's always easy to attack millennials, uh, especially uh, the generation that is their parents who raised them. So really, who's responsible for millennials? Is it, Do we blame it all on technology or, or, or is it parenting? On that note, Maybe we should get to know each other more. Maybe we should stay in the house longer. Maybe we should have multi-generations in the home. Remember, you're still living with your parents? Oh. In your parents' basement? Oh. But now, culturally and financially, things have changed. Nancy Worth is with us. She is a lead researcher on a report uh, and geography professor at the University of Waterloo. Uh, they have done a study on all of this. And, of course, uh, what is the reason for the change, the cultural change, uh, the shift that what we're seeing? Nancy Worth is uh, with us now. Nancy, thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem. Happy to be here. Uh, do we do we still view living with your parents the same way that we did 10, 15 years ago? I don't think so. I think the stereotypes and what it means to live at home is really changing quickly. As as the census data tells us, more than 47% of young people in the greater Toronto area and greater Hamilton area do so. 
So it's not just a small percentage of people who can't make it work. It's a whole generation of young people that are using living at home as a way to get ahead and be more secure. When did you start to notice this shift? The shift in how people are thinking about it or the shift in people living at home? Both. Well, I think the shift in terms of the stereotype of like moving away from the stereotype of the lazy millennial, that's only happened maybe in the last two or three years as it becomes such a common experience. Everybody knows someone who's boomeranged home to stay with parents or you are one of those people yourself. And rather than seeing yourself as someone who's lazy, people that move, move home are really trying hard to save for their future, to pay down debt, to look for that new job, and really use it as a springboard to move out again. Is... But this trend... Sorry, sorry go sorry, ahead. No, no, you go ahead. This trend towards living at home has been increasing since the 1980s. So it's been creeping up over time. And especially as things in the labor and housing markets have been getting much more challenging, it's something that's going to be increasing as well. Uh, do you think the, 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 uh, the shift has happened? Do you think everybody thinks this way? Do you think it's perfectly acceptable or now? Or do you think people are still questioning this? Well, if you read some of the comments on whenever there's an article posted about millennials, you still get some really negative things, yeah. probably from uh, the baby boomers. So that back in my generation, I left at 18. I never went home. What's wrong with the kids these days? And I think there is a sort of gap between individual capability versus what's out there in the world to get. So even when you think about house prices, the percentage of your income that was needed to buy a house in the 1970s versus now is really different. So the average millennial needs to save for more than 10 years to even get on the property ladder. But that can be done much faster if you live at home for a year, and rent is about $20,000 a year on average in Toronto. So that can be a huge savings and get someone on the property ladder much sooner with a short period of living at home. Nancy, there's always been a generation gap. Why does this one seem to be so big? I think it's all about expectations or what you might have hoped for. And this includes millennials or Gen Y themselves. A lot of people that I spoke to thought by the time they were in their late 20s or early 30s, they thought they'd have a full-time job with benefits that they could really sink into and have as a career, or they thought they'd be able to afford a home. And for lots of young people in that situation, that isn't the case. So work is increasingly contract or part-time so a level of insecurity with work means you're not sure you want to take out a mortgage if you're not going to have a new contract after six months. Is this the transformation in the marketplace, the transformation from one, one kind of world to another, the technology world? I don't think it's just the technology world because really we're seeing a change across the sort of in, in whole experience of work. I think this is true not just for millennials. People of all ages are experiencing this. The idea of or even the expectation or hope that you're going to be in one job and that's going to provide good benefits and a pension, nobody has that expectation now. So we think about how that impacts the rest of our lives in terms of do, do we get married and have kids? Do we try and buy a house? How do we rely on that? Or how do we rely on work to sort of support us when it feels really insecure? I guess, we're, since, and I probably should have asked this right at the beginning uh, for some that don't know, define millennium, uh, millennial, define Generation Y. Really, they're two overlapping terms. So Gen Y comes from after Gen X, which were the generation between the baby boomers and the generation of young people now. Millennial comes from the first generation to sort of come of age or sort of turn 18 by the year 2000. For the purposes of my study, I talked to people that were born between 1980 and 1995 which are sort of overlapping with those two generations. Generation is a tricky word, but it's important to sort of state how you're using it and what it means to you. It seemed there were, um, in, in decades past, there were younger generations and older generations. Why do we have to decipher every generation differently now? I think it's really useful to have this generational lens to think about social research, to think about patterns in labor and housing, because especially for this generation of Gen Y, of millennials, a lot of them came of age in the economic recession of 2008-2009. So a lot of them were finishing uh, high school, finishing university, entering into a labor market that was particularly tough. And by having a generational lens, you can think about a whole cohort or group of people mm. that share that experience of entering the labor market at the same time. 
And for baby boomers, it's the same. They entered a different kind of labor market. So there's a sort of shared experience amongst people of a similar age. And that's why it's useful for me. Uh, many have said, uh, for economic reasons, uh, due to the recession, 2008, mm-hmm. post-recession and such, that it was a lost decade. Is this a lost generation? I don't think so. I think they're being very strategic and living at home in order to achieve their future goals, whether that's saving up and going back to school. It's survival. Saving survival. money or paying down. Yes, absolutely. And mm-hmm. it's also survival not just for young people, but for their parents as well. So a really interesting outcome of this research was to talk about the mutual reliance of parents and their adult children living together. So often we might assume there's a sort of one-way parents helping their kids. But the young people that I spoke with talked about sharing the housework, sharing the sort of cooking and cleaning and looking after the home, sharing the sort of shopping and running errands, all that domestic work. When we're all busy and overworked and stressed out, the idea of splitting that labor can actually Hmm. be really important for everybody. We're looking to our parents for more than just monetary reasons. Absolutely. So also a strong connection between emotional support in terms of, or even navigating a job market getting that advice and experience. That leads to my next question. Obviously, we started this off by saying how, how this has shifted and how the view of living at home has shifted. Good thing, bad thing. It certainly sounds like it's not a bad thing. After all. Well, for, well, for lots of places around the world, it's absolutely the norm. Yeah. So I think of a lot of places in especially Southern Europe, across Asia, the idea of the intergenerational family is nothing new. And there's a huge number of benefits, the idea of generations helping each other. In the, especially in the Toronto area, in the research that I did, people talked about saving money or paying down debt, but they also talked about their parents helping out with looking after their kids, the whole grandparent daycare phenomenon, mm. and sort of care that's sort of shared across generations of kids looking after parents who need help. So the idea of the intergenerational family is nothing new, but... I guess for a lot of young people that were involved in this research, it wasn't what they expected to be doing in their mid to late 20s and early 30s. Simply because it's not the way their parents did it, perhaps. Or maybe they did. I mean, if you look back to the Depression, I mean, I'm sure you saw the same sort of thing happening. Right. So we have a a sort of sense of history here, but it's not a very long one. So usually people look to their parents and what their parents were able to do as a sort of, maybe that's how it all works. But if we look, as you say, a couple of generations back... Again, the intergenerational family, the sort of coping in a larger group rather than trying to do everything individually, was seen as much more common and not remarkable at all. So we've sort of created an expectation that unless you're living on your own, buying a house, having your own apartment in your mid-20s, that's somehow not good enough. And that, I think, is increasingly is what is changing, is that perception is changing. So with that, is the, quote, American dream or Canadian dream changing? House in the suburbs, two kids, all that sort of stuff. Well, that's in terms of the social social side of it, young adults are putting off getting married. They're having fewer kids. People don't feel like they have the money and time to afford them. Or the, or the idea of insecurity is really the takeaway message of this research. Even if someone has a great job or a great place to stay, the idea that they feel it could go away at any second it sort of makes people think again about when they want to start a family. They want to mitigate risk wherever they can. And living at home is one of the ways to do that. Um, some have said in this technological world where, you know, we have false friendships, uh, although we may seem more connected, we don't have personal individual relationships, uh, face-to-face discussion. Could perhaps this, this shift, this trend change all that? I mean, is that the pendulum swinging back? I think so, and I think it's just one pattern within what I call a housing coping strategy. If housing is really expensive, if work is insecure, people are doing a lot of things in response to that. They're having roommates, they're renting out a space on Airbnb, they're moving in with their parents. There's all these ways of sort of coping with that, and usually they involve a degree of interdependence or mutual reliance, which I think is really important. Uh, we've been talking mostly about the, the, the financial side of it, which, uh, mm. you know, I'm guessing is obviously uh, is the most prominent. But this is also, there's also a cultural thing here. You talked about Europe, Asia and such. Uh, the, yeah. fact, the fact that we are now living with all of these different cultures and, and seeing this in our neighborhoods and such, does that make it more accepting? Does that, are we learning from these cultures? Absolutely. The benefits of the intergenerational family, I, I think, are huge. 
but also just the sheer numbers of young adults. So if more than 47% of young people are living with parents, it is a normal thing to do. That's what people are doing. And I think that also changes the, the way we see it as well. Uh, do these, at what point, is this just putting off, getting out? Uh, is the plan to stay together? Do you see that shifting at all? I think for a lot of the people that I spoke with, this was a temporary experience, whether it was temporary in terms of two months, six months, a year, or whether they had yet to move out. But they saw themselves eventually setting up a home of their own, either with a partner or on their own. But when that might be, it all connected to what kind of job they had and what they felt they could afford. You know, it's odd because there's people who may read this and think that this is very strange. It's not perhaps the way they grew up. But then again, and as I read this, there are parts of it that you're thinking, wow, there is really a cultural shift here, isn't there? But I, I think back to my mother who uh, immigrated from another country, uh, came over, you know, the typical story uh, as, a, as a young teenager, the kids, the suitcase, the clothes on their back, that's it. They did the same thing. It's no different, right. really. It's and just, I, have- I, I guess it's just that they, they all came over and worked to give their kids a better life. They, the kids got a better life, and for some reason we moved away from this sort of thing. Or they thought having a better life meant having your own house away from the family. Right. So it's all about the perception and and what a good life means. And I think that is part of the change that's happening now. So one in three of my respondents to the survey said, I just want to live at home. So yes, I'm saving money. Yes, I might be having other benefits, but I also just want to do it. And that includes sort of cultural and family and a whole sort of series of reasons could be tied up into just, I want to do it. This works for me at this point in my life. And we're not sure about the future, but this is working now. The idea of adult children being at home as a support for their parents and their parents' support of them, I think, is really interesting and important to look at further. Here's uh, an interesting angle on this, Nancy, from uh, a listener. Maybe if parents stayed home with their children in the child's younger years instead of the child's adult years. Here we go with the shifting paradigm again. Well, I, I think... You mean in terms of who's looking after young kids? Yes. But your point is, is in a home like this, the grandparents can help out. Well, actually, that's seen as one of the benefits of co-residence is that young mm-hmm. women who can't really afford child care can actually go back to the workplace if they want to do so. And grandparent daycare is one of the things that's allowing that to happen. So it's really filling all the gaps of... Uh, aspects of our society that we don't provide to the government. Like we don't have Quebec's $10 uh, a month child care program, right? $10 a day, sorry, child care program. Child care is really expensive in Ontario. And the family is sort of stepping in where we don't have these other wider sets of resources Hmm. to draw on. Interesting. Where do you see this going? Do you just see this increasing over time? Not necessarily for Gen Y. I think they're sort of saving up and sort of getting ready to headed on their own, especially as this generation gets older. But for those that are coming after them that are now sort of finishing high school and graduating college, and I think that is their expectation, that they will be able to maybe move home for a few months and then move out again for their next job, and then maybe they will move somewhere else for work but stay with their parents for a month in between. This idea of having the parental safety net of being able to move home is a really sort of lucky option that not everybody has. That's a valid point. What to those that don't? I mean, I guess we're just assuming that most do. Do most have the Do most have this option? Not at all. So if you think about it in terms of sort of the resources of the family, really rich parents just give their kids money, right? They give them money for their own place or they give them money for a down payment. And that is one kind of sort of transfer of wealth across generations. The other way of thinking about it is is giving someone space in your home it's really a way of transferring wealth to, get, to them in a different way by giving space, by allowing mm. them to save on rental or housing costs. But not everybody has that space in the parental home, or not everybody has a positive relationship with their parents. So really you see some young people that can benefit from this sort of transfer of wealth and others that can't. 
You know, you bring up a difference in wealth. Nancy, you bring up a very, very, very valid point. And why are they staying? Why are they going? They're going because they can. They're going because they want to be independent. They're going because they're young adults and they want to get out from underneath uh, their parents' roof. So uh, is the culture really shifting in the sense that, you know, we, we, we want to spend more time there? Is it simply we have no choice? But then it's not a bad thing either. I think it's all of those mixed up together. I think it's never one explanatory factor. It's all these messy, complicated things, as things always are with families. It's not just about saving money. It's about helping each other out with household work. It's about trying to be more independent in future while also helping out your parents at the same time. It's the mess of family, really, when you think about this issue. It's never one thing. It's always lots of things that are sometimes conflicting with each other. Nancy Worth has been with us, lead researcher on the report and geography professor at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating topic. Thanks. If people want to read the report, it's at www.genyathome.ca. Thank you, Nancy. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I can't look at this picture either. Can we? Thank goodness this is radio. Good thing we're doing this. Uh, good thing we're doing this topic now and not at lunchtime. So, um, some of you may have tattoos. They could be of various things. Could be things that uh, sentimental things, people that have passed, loves of lives, just art, just expression. What have you. Um, and I remember when uh, uh, I was in high school, um, I think a pile of guys on the rugby team all got tattoos on their rear end. And I, w- I was just too much of a suck to do it. And uh, they're a lot more primitive then than they are now. They're beautiful. Some of the great work is a couple of employees here that, uh, my God, their body looks like a canvas. Uh, it- it's incredible what they can do now. Uh, and, of course, I was too big of a suck to, uh, you know, Clearly, I wasn't tough enough to be playing rugby if I couldn't get a tattoo on my arse. So, um, but I digress. Uh, now it seems, and I can't remember anyone, no, you know, I'm a guy who's 50. I am a middle-aged man, so I know. I'm an old fart. But I, I don't remember a lot of people with tattoos other than drunken members of the rugby team. And now, of course, you know, pretty much everybody knows somebody that's got some sort of, of, of tattoo or body art or where have you. And we've seen it, as I've said, over the years. It just becomes uh, incredibly elaborate. And so where do you go with this? Where do you take it? Uh, you know, some people have sleeves. Some people go up onto the face where you can see outside of the clothing and such. But what about an eye tattoo? A sclera, a sclera, a sclera tattoo. Uh, a 24-year-old girl from Ottawa got a tattoo this m- uh, month, and it could cost her her eye. A uh, former pet nutritionist received uh, a, a eye tattoo, a body modification procedure that involves tattooing the eyeball. Has lost partial vision as a result. There is a possibility she could lose her eye altogether. She's now telling her story in an effort to spread the word about the danger of this sort of, a, of tattoo. And in a series of posts and videos is shared on uh, Facebook and been tracking her recovery and so on and so forth. Uh, she is a body modification enthusiast. She's got lots of tattoos. She had her tongue split surgically. Uh, this tattoo on the eyeball just seemed to be the, nat- uh, the next natural progression, uh, progression she thought. So uh, we're going to talk to a couple of different guests. One, we're, we're going to talk to an eye doctor, uh, but first we're going to talk to uh, Shane Muska. He is a tattoo artist, Grim City Tattoo Club, and is with us now. Hello, Shane. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Tell everybody where, where Grim City Tattoo Club is. Uh, we are basically at the corner of Maine and Kenilworth, right beside the Gladstone. All right. So what are your, what are your thoughts on the eye tattoo, Shane? Well, personally, you know, I, I'm very adamant. Uh, I refuse to tattoo face uh, anything that uh, could, you know, have a detriment to um, a, a person socially. You know, um, we have to understand as artists that we can impact people socially, and and a tattoo on the on, on the face, you know, hands, um, people aren't going to look at you the same. And tattooing the eye, I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, so you you don't really do uh, facial tattoos then at all? You try to stay away from that? 
I will absolutely refuse. Uh, and as you mentioned, do people fully understand the impact that this may have on their life um, at the time of getting these sorts of things? I mean, obviously, you've, I'm assuming you've been asked before. Well, well, they should, and I, I think one of the biggest problems is, is that I think far too many people are too cavalier about about getting attached or any other body modification. It's something that, you know, it's a lifelong commitment and, and in some cases can have um, severe consequences socially and, and physically and, you know, even mentally. And, um, you know, they should be, the artist as well should be looking after a client's interests and both should be proceeding with, you know, education and, and research and, and knowledge. What, what can you tell us about this type of tattoo, Shane, the, the tattoo on the eye? What do you know about well, it? Yeah, it's, this is something that absolutely needs to be looked into. It, it's, it's one of those things, it's a high-risk procedure with, you know, very, very high, uh, very bad consequences if it's wrong. And, you know, there's only a handful of people that, that specialize in this, that have the knowledge uh, to do this, you know, they 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 understand the body, they understand the medical implications. They will consult their clients on it, and the client needs to be, you know, totally aware of not only um, the the risks involved, but they have to be able to accept, you know, if it does go wrong. And um, yeah, high risk, and uh, proceed with caution, proceed with with education. What what advice do you have for someone, especially if they're coming in looking for their first tattoo? What sort of conversation do you have with them? Well, it, it, a lot of it is, um, you know, they, they need to really look into the artists that they have in mind. They they need to find somebody who is capable um, and has the, the skill set to do what they want. Um, really, really be diligent in looking at portfolios and going in and talk to the artist that you're considering a few times, you know, like don't be afraid to, to really kick the tire and, and get into the person's head and look at their portfolio for a long period of time and talk to people that have been tattooed or, or had body modification done by them and, you know, make sure that they do, can in fact do, do what you want them to do and they can do it competently. Uh, talk about some of the, you know, and, and obviously you're a tattoo artist, so you don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, you know, j- just to make uh, the consumer aware, what are some of the ric- risks? What should you be aware of before this happens? Well, it, not only medically, but even from an artistic standpoint, you know, you want to make sure that not, not every artist can do every type of style out there. So artistically, you may not even end up with what you want if you don't do your research in that regard, but... From a medical standpoint, clearly, um, you know, there's a chance for infection. Um, you know, a professional shop with, with skilled uh, craftsmen, um, the, the chances of that occurring are extremely, stre- extremely small. Um, but there's always a chance of um, reaction to an ink. Um, you know, again, very, very rare, but it can happen. And um, um, if you get an artist that's not very good at the craft, you could end up with some scarring. Um, from the fact that they're heavy-handed and going too deep and they don't really know what they're doing. Uh, so whether you have a visual um, uh, appearance that, that you're not happy with uh, or um, you know, a reaction to the ink, there's always some small degree of chance that something could go wrong, and you have to be able to accept those, those risks. How do you explain the interest in these now? I mean, obviously it's growing. We see lots of them. How do you explain that? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the mass-produced society, and we're all kind of doing little jobs that aren't all that exciting. We're in cubicles, and we're not all that different from each other. We're driving the same cars and wearing the same clothing, and there isn't much room for us to express ourselves as individuals this day and age, and I think it has a lot to do with that. And I think the fact that the the artistry has come a long, long way in the last 10 or 20 years of tattooing, and and it's brought a lot more interest into it as well. I think with the diversity as well, people can see that they really can get something that is unique and and, uh, only for them. Shane Muska has been with us, tattoo artist, Grim City Tattoo Club, uh, talking about uh, the pros and cons of tattooing. Shane, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in uh, Dr. Barry Thenis. Uh, he is the past president of the Canadian Association of Optometrists and is a practicing optometrist, and he is with us now. Barry, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. No problem. Uh, have you heard of these eyeball tattoos? Yeah, I mean, just uh, mostly in the, the medical journals lately because we've had, uh, I guess, some that haven't turned out too well and people have lost eyes or had their eye damaged, so... 
that's uh, before before I seen that the last couple of weeks. I thought, why would anybody want to do that? It's kind of dangerous, in our opinion. What can you tell us about this procedure? What are they actually doing to the eyeball? Well, uh, they'll be impregnating uh, dye into either the conjunctiva or the sclera, uh, and uh, to try and permanently change the color of the eye. From you know, normally it's white because the sclera is underneath is a white tissue, and then the conjunctiva is a, sort of the skin of the eyeball on the outside. His basically should be clear, and then there, of course, are a few blood vessels running in through there. So they're, you know, they're attempting to change the color, I guess, to uh, make a statement or whatever. But the risk is around the eye, if if you don't have, if there's any kind of contamination, you can run into big problems and lose an eye. And, you know, we think the uh, sense of sight is pretty important to people, so we don't say, why would, why would you risk that? Um... Who would be qualified to do this? I mean, you know, uh, tattoo artists are amazing. They can do some amazing work on one's arm or leg or back or what have you. But I'm guessing playing with the eye is a whole different ballgame. Well, that, as eye doctors, optometrists and ophthalmologists, we certainly think so. So, uh, yeah, having somebody that does stuff on your skin is one issue, and, and I even have some concerns about that. But your eye is just a much more sensitive organ and, and much more serious re, uh, ramifications if things don't go right. So, yeah, who's qualified? I, I, you know, I don't know about the licensing. I guess I'm not sure how that works. Would this not be a painful procedure? Uh, it could be, although, you know, with the use of anesthetics and stuff, uh, that would reduce that pain. Uh, yeah, but it, it's potentially could be, yes, because... But the conjunctiva itself is not much more sensitive than your skin, so mm. in that sense it's probably tolerable. If you were to do anything with your cornea and to touch it, that's extremely sensitive area. That's the central clear window of your eyes. Uh, and they, you have more nerve endings per square centimeter than anywhere else in your body, so you wouldn't want to touch it. And even in the process, if you're not control, controlling dryness and such, uh, the cornea can be damaged from getting too dry if the, the lid can't you know, blink as it normally does. And again, I, I have to admit, I'm not up on the details of eyeball tattooing. So, Wow. And, and hopefully you don't have to be. <laughs> well, I haven't seen anybody in my practice, and I hope I don't have to, but it just, uh, like a craze a few years ago where people were getting their irises to change their color by implanting a little plastic film in there. It was never approved in Canada, but some people would pay big money to go other, other places in the world where there is no real... Uh, you know, checks and controls on things, and uh, we lost a number of eyes in Canada from that. So uh, that's what would it, more serious, but so explain that. What would be the difference between that and in a contact lens? No, this this is put inside the eye, ah. uh, on top of your iris, the colored part of your eye. Oh man, to cha- permanently change the eye color. The process was developed for people that were born without irises or, or had damage to their iris so they didn't have a proper pupil anymore. Mm. And in that case, you know, we would agree you need, you need some re, re, uh, reconstructive surgery. But then some what we would consider maybe unscrupulous surgeons were uh, advertising and promoting that this could be done. If you don't like your brown eyes, we could change them to blue. Wow. But again, it's risky. Uh, uh, you know, there was a number of eyes lost from it. This maybe isn't quite as bad because it's on the outside, but it's still in a very delicate area where uh, if you get any bacteria and stuff in there, you can have major problems in pretty short order that are very difficult to control. Is, is Would it be the risk of infection that would be the biggest threat, or is it just putting this dye in your eyeball? Well, the risk of infection, I would say, is the worst because it can cause a lot more damage, but some people may react to certain dyes. And so if you get an allergic response, that can occasionally be just as bad as an infection and uh, where your body starts to attack that foreign substance and uh, it can cause major damage in a short time. How durable is the eyeball? It's actually surprisingly durable. It's a, it's a fairly tough tissue. Uh, it's, uh, the sclera is, is quite tough. It's very difficult to just perforate it if you're ever going to try to stick something in it. Plus, it sits in your orbit uh, which is the bony structures around it, which protect it on most sides. And around that, there's a bunch of fats, so we can move around and it's cushioned. But there, there's limits to what it can take. But it's, it's a lot tougher than people realize. But uh, why would you take a chance in 
put a foreign substance in or under your conjunctiva or on your eye. I, 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 don't, I don't understand it. Um, is the eye capable of, of healing itself in a scenario like this? Can it rebuild itself if there is damage? Or as with some scenarios, once the damage is done, it's done? Yeah, basically it would be more the latter. If you cause that kind of damage in this particular area, it would ha- it would scar up and have a hard time to to return to its normal function. What are your thoughts on laser surgery? A total out of the park question. Uh, I'm a proponent of laser surgery uh, done properly uh, for the people that qualify. And there's a number of things we'd have to check out, you know, from things as how dry your eyes are to how much of a correction to how thick your cornea is, etc. But uh, it's been done now for 27 years, and uh, on people that have the right kind of correction and a, and a healthy eye that can tolerate it, it's like 99% effective, and we do not see uh, any really long-term ramifications. Again, if done properly. Are there so many that don't much. qualify, doctor? Yeah, there'd be a good number of people that it's either not worth your while or there's health factors about your eye that make it too risky. Uh, have, how have we advanced in this over those 27 years and the, pers- and the process and the procedure and such? Well, the procedure was pretty safe right out of the gates, uh, but it didn't always end up with as perfect a result as, as we do nowadays. And it's advanced a lot. Uh, much what, better lasers and, and uh, much better techniques. What about the eye changing over time or, or, or does it once you stop growing? Typically, once you... Uh, get to around 20 or so, your eye doesn't change too much provided you don't develop cataracts or, or other conditions. And, and there's all kinds of exceptions to that rule, but typically not too much. So if you wait till after 18 or 20 uh, and then you have laser surgery, you'll pretty much have that result for the rest of your life. At least you'll probably never go back to as bad as you were. But there are changes that still happen with age, and this does not stop that. So you will still need, likely need reading glasses when you get older, or, uh, and perhaps your eyes will shift a little bit, and it may not be just perfect. Because to be perfect and to stay perfect all your life with your vision is very, very difficult and not too common. Why is it that people who had contacts or glasses and wore them all the time and then got laser surgery uh, will then still sometimes need reading glasses? That's age. Oh, (laughs) no getting around that. Yeah, no getting around it. Uh, There's things that happen to our body as we age. Uh, The basic reason for needing reading glasses is the lens inside of your eye, which is behind your pupil, and it's supposed to change the power of your eye from far to near, hardens up as we age. So Mm. you can't do it anymore. And that's all, that's in a different area. The lasering is done right on the front surface. It basically, think about it this way, it, it corrects your static focus. So when your eyes at rest, right. that's set up so it's perfect for distance. It doesn't do anything for your ability to change focus, and you lose that with age. Uh, we uh, are told to exercise to keep our body in shape. Is there anything we can do with our eyes for that? Uh, no, you won't stop that process. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, use your eyes, uh, look after them, protect them from sunlight, all that sort of thing will make a difference. But as far as specific exercise to stop your lens from aging, no, there isn't any. All right, Dr. Barry Thenis has been with us, past president of the Canadian Association of Optometrists, practicing optometrists, and uh, your feeling on eye tattoos is? Stay away from it. All right, Barry, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.